But along with drinking early, I became kind of sexually active early. And I always was, you know, prided myself on being one of these, these teenagers that was a little bit blase about this in the way that I saw other characters in movies, you know, I was a creature of pop culture, you know, like, oh, it's no big deal, you know. When I got sober, I think that was when I started to realize, oh, wait, I actually think it is a big deal. And I've been drinking my way through that the whole time. And I didn't realize that I was numbing and distancing from these parts of myself that actually do think it is a high stakes thing to be close to another person, to let them near. Even things like kissing someone, which just seemed like really not a big deal. I mean, like, look, like, is there a lower stakes engagement? But when I was first sober, it was just like, oh my God. You're going to take your mouth and put it on somebody else's mouth? I felt like a 12-year-old. And so when I started dating, you know, I had to really make space for this person that was sort of like an adolescent in this 36, 37-year-old woman's body, (laughs) you know? Yeah, it's for real, 100%. Yeah, and for me, it- You're masquerading as a woman, but you're rolling around with some teenage emotions thoughts and ideas. I absolutely was, because I didn't really understand that I'd always (laughs) used alcohol to bypass these uncomfortable feelings. So I had never learned to kind of get through them on my own. I would go on these dates and the way that it manifest for me was that I was just like absolutely like closed off and like, you know, they drop me out, you know, they'd get to my door to say goodbye and I'd be like, okay, bye. You know, like, like the road runner, like there's like a cloud of dust in my wake. Yes. And it took a while for me to just start feeling comfortable with myself so that I could start feeling comfortable with another person. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, episode 43. The purpose of this show is to allow you free access to alcohol and drug addiction recovery success stories. Our goal is to entertain you and enrich your life with tools that will help you make your sober experience easier and more serene. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast. However, I am a believer in the program, and the recovery has brought my family. I started this show to highlight the dramatic and inspiring stories I have been hearing in recovery meetings for decades and wanted to bring those messages of hope directly to you. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you find what you're looking for. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. You can support us by clicking the donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. Thank you for your consideration. My email address is Mike at SoberShares.com. Please reach out to me with any listener feedback, questions, or show ideas. And now it's time to meet our guest. I'm going to turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they wish. Hi, my name is Sarah Hepla. I'm an alcoholic, and my sobriety date is June 13th, 2010. You are the author of your best-selling memoir called Blackout, and you also host a podcast. I did a podcast on sort of the lost history of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. It's called America's Girls. I did that with Texas Monthly. And then Blackout, which has the wordy subtitle, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. That is a memoir that's really about, you know, falling in love with alcohol and then why I had to walk away from it. I purchased that book on Audible two weeks ago and I listened to it. I think it was about a seven and a half hour run. Super, super interesting. We'll dig into that a little bit more later. Can you give out your website so people can find out more about you if they want to dig in right away? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, My website is Sarah Heppola, S-A-R-A-H-H-E-P-O-L-A.com. 
that has a lot of links to the book, uh, the podcast, as well as I'm a journalist uh, who's been working for 25 years. So a lot of of links to my work over the years. Is there a contact button on there that they can reach out to yes. via email? Yes. Okay. So if you want to reach out directly to her, do it through her website. That would be fantastic. Can we start off by having you tell us about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? I was born in um, the Philadelphia area. My family was from the East Coast, uh, but my dad got transferred to Dallas, this new city on the rise, Dallas, Texas in 1978. Um, we were Yankee libs that uh, you know were transplanted into the wilds of Dallas, Texas. My parents were looking for the best school system to put us in. We moved into a fairly well-to-do district, which is if you're in the Dallas area, it's the Park Cities. I was like the middle-class kid in the Tony School District. We were outsiders. It took me a while to really understand how much of an outsider I and my family were. My, my parents are dear people. They're still together, uh, amazingly, after more than 50 years. And uh, I have an older brother that I absolutely adored. And, you know, he was my running buddy for a while until he decided that a, that a younger sister wasn't like such the hot look. I think in a lot of ways, gosh, m- my childhood was was the things that you want for childhood, right? It was safe. I had a good education, but there was a lot. When I think back on my childhood years, what I see is I was also like a pretty lonely kid. You know, I was alone in my room a lot. I was not always such an engaged kid at school. I was like, you know, I did pretty well at school, but I didn't always feel part of. I mean, I think this is something that is so common for a lot of alcoholics is that there's this early feeling of sort of estrangement. And for me, that amplified even more when when I was about 10 years old, I hit puberty. I was the youngest kid in class and I was the, the first kid to kind of have that happen to her. And my sense of just not really belonging in my own body, wanting to hide the intensity of my hypervigilance around what other people thought of me just got incredibly intense. And I was also somebody that really loved to disappear into pop culture, meaning that I loved to to disappear into books, movies, songs. I mean, I was just a pop culture junkie. This is very true for a lot of kids in the 80s. I remember hearing in a meeting once somebody say fantasy was my first addiction. And I I don't know if I'm ready to say that fantasy was my addiction. I can tell you that fantasy was my preferred life when I was younger. And I think that, that in some ways that laid the groundwork for then what alcohol became, because then like alcohol became my next escape and my next sort of fantasy life. One thing I should add about being a, ch- a kid was I didn't particularly like being a child. I always wanted to be a grown up, really? and I always wanted to be older. You know, in my extended family, I have several cousins, you know, like 20 or 30 or something like that. I'm the youngest of all of them. And so being the youngest of that lot, you know, just like I always had my eyes on like, just like I could be a little bit older. And plus all the material I was reading, the books and the movies, they're all about teenagers. So, you know, there I am at 10 and 11. I'm like, I just want to fast forward. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and also like the early development. So I looked older, one of the games that my older cousin, who was my brother's age. So like, say when I'm 12, she's 16. Um, she used to play this game where we would go to parties and she'd say, which one of us is older, meaning her and me. Uh And everybody would always guess me. And then the, the big punchline was, no, she's 12 years old. And it was like, no way. Okay. So let's talk about spirituality for a little bit. As a young person growing up, do you have any thoughts or memories on spirituality? Were you exposed to religion or anything? like that as a child? Yeah, but I mean, like I grew up in this really religious community. I mean, here we are in Dallas and and the part of of town that I was in was very kind of like, like um, 
people really liked to tout their Christianity. My parents were the kind of modest, inclusive Christians that went to this kind of oddball church that I thought was really dorky, and now I think it's sweet. But back then, you know, when you're just trying to leverage status in a community, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe we're going to this weirdo church. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, I, I think I was, I, I think from a young age, I was so curious about how the world worked and you know, what happens to us? I mean, I, I still remember learning that people died. I still think it was the worst news that I've ever gotten, that everybody I know was going to die. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Um, and, and so what it, like, why are we here and what's going on? So I always had that kind of like, like puzzling, questing mind. And, and probably by the time I'm like 10 and 11 and 12, and I'm starting to go to like, like youth groups and and Bible studies. And I remember asking questions and I, I learned pretty early that the questions I asked were not good ones. You know, it was kind of like, it was kind of like, well, well, like what happens to people in China if, uh, you know, if, if, if the Christian God is the only way to get to heaven and they'd be sort of like, well, they just all go to hell. And I was like, wow, really? Um, that's intense. There's billions of them. I what? mean, geez, uh, you know, um, I got the sense that questioning the dogma of Christian religion was not an acceptable thing. And who were you questioning it to? Were you asking your parents or the No, no, I'm talking more amongst my peers and really amongst these youth groups that I was going to, oh, you know, you would, like you would voice those questions in the youth groups? Every once in a while, yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> know. Like, what is she talking about? What is she talking about? And uh, yeah, I, I, I remember um yeah, I remember actually going to a uh, a youth group meeting where there was this guy giving a uh presentation and he said um you know these it, it was sort of like these are the groups that you should watch out for and one of them was journalists <laughs> and one of them was homosexuals and um you know one of the things about the church that my parents went to was that they were the first church in dallas to openly accept gay members and so i grew up around a lot of gay men and so it you know sort of uh, opened my eyes in a way that eventually became, you know, more common in society that there was really just not a lot of difference between us, especially when it came to the matter of the soul. Mm -hmm. And so, and I had always had my eye on writing. And so the idea that both these things were sort of like, I mean, you know, this is like early culture war indoctrination, really. Um, and so I stood up and walked out. It was like my first act of like civil disobedience. And, uh, and I never went back to the youth group. And so I, I think that one of the things that I learned, um, unfortunately, was to, to tie religion to a kind of intolerance or a kind of judgment that uh, I didn't think was right in the world. When you stood up and walked out of that meeting, did you voice your concerns or tell your parents that you did that? And what did they say? Do you remember? No, I wouldn't have spoken to my parents about that. I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have a lot of religious conversations with my parents. Um, I, I, I think they wanted me to kind of come to my own. They really left me alone to kind of find my way there. And I think that like, not only did I 
did I not talk to them? I don't think I would have wanted to talk to them. You know, like I, I don't think there was any part of me that was like, well, what does mom and dad think about this and how can they guide me? I mean, you know, it's a little bit of a jerk in that sense, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to figure it out on myself. I had a lot of, I had a lot of sort of, um, it's crazy how everybody's fam- every family is different because there's some families in Dallas where the kids and the parents would just talk about religion for hours. What about your brother? What was he doing? He's four and a half years older than you. What was he doing while you were doing this church deal? Was he into it? Was well, by the time I'm 13, he's 17. So, you know, I think he's out. You know, I don't, I don't think he was going to church. Um, yeah. Did y'all ever talk about it? You and your brother? Absolutely not. No. I mean, you know, talk to anybody about it. No. I mean, that's why I say a lot of my childhood, I, you know, I, I, my memory is sort of one of loneliness. And I think, you know, people ask me why I became a writer. And I think part of it comes from the desire to connect and express, but not feeling like there's people around. And I don't want to say that I was neglected. I wasn't, but by the age of 10 my brother's 14 he's just like he's got a computer in his room he's got like his own jam he's not interested in talking to me my mom is in school she's training to be a therapist i was very close with my mom but she was gone quite a bit i was um my father was taking care of me my father is a sweet man but he is a man of very few words really so still that way still that way engineer finish by heritage you know he just comes by the uh the the quietness very honestly does he eat any weird finnish foods did he ever like try to get you to eat weird stuff from finland um no but every once in a while they will they will pull out this um cardamom braid which is actually really good it's kind of like a like a cinnamon roll that's in bread you know that's a big finnish thing but yeah Mm -hmm. have you been to finland we have yeah we went as a family it was beautiful yeah i went there a couple times too there's a lot of really talented hockey players that come out of there, ice hockey players. Mm-hmm. I'm into ice hockey. Finland is a cool country. Yeah, it's beautiful. So when did you first become aware of alcohol and what were your initial thoughts about it? So my parents used to drink beer and my dad would sip that in the armchair. And I can remember one day he gave me a sip of it. And I think it was one of these ideas like we're going we're gonna to kind of like teach her that she doesn't want this, you know? (laughs) And unfortunately it was just like, it was like, like actually there's a writer named Mary Carr and she describes the first drink of alcohol as, as sipping stars. I think that's so beautiful. It was like that. It was just like, whoa, what is that? Mm -hmm. I loved it. And this was one of the weird anomalies about me as I was growing up was that I absolutely loved the taste of beer. A lot of girls don't for whatever reason. So I started stealing sips of my mom's beer because my mom was such a non-alcoholic that she would leave half cans of beer in the fridge. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I started, you know, taking sips from them. I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, like I knew I wasn't supposed to do it, but I also knew that it tasted delicious. And, you know, over the years that just kind of got a little bit like, you know, you kind of like edge into the water a little bit, like one sip becomes two sips becomes like, oops, I think I drank half the can, which means I need to like open another can and drink Mm -hmm. that down. (laughs) And now I have to go like throw this can away in the yeah. in the alleyway somewhere Covertly. like like what can i get away with and so you know like I, I, I this was probably going on from the years of like seven eight nine ten what you know? yeah 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 so like by the time i'm 10 we're sort of up at the like every once in a while i might drink a whole can of beer you know? my parents hate this story and i understand you know it absolutely kills with all them. apologies i mean you know it's 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 it, and, and i think to this day my dad is sort of like i think you're exaggerating that and it's like you know all i can tell you i you know it's been too long for me to tell you like every 
every, like this certainly didn't happen every day. Yeah. I just know that this was something that regularly happened. There's absolutely no question about it. And, um, you know, by the time I'm 10 and, uh, you know, in fifth grade and then sixth grade, I'm doing this like, you know, and, 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 uh, I'm starting to go to friends' houses and every once in a while we might take a sip of, of liquor under the cabinet, you know, like this thing is starting to become something, but the place where I really became aware of alcohol um, in something more than this like rebellious, you know, dip a toe in the water every once in a while was when I spent the summer with my cousin in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I, again, I was 11, about to be 12 and she was 16. All her friends were working at a video arcade. So this takes place in 1985 oh, cool. and, uh, they were the coolest kids, you know, like they all hung out together. They were, I just, I wanted to be part of that group so bad and I felt so locked up inside my own body and mouth. I think somebody asked her that summer if I was mute because I literally never spoke. And, you know, but it was just, yeah, I was 12 years old around these cool kids. I was just like completely terrified to speak to them. The, one of the last weeks I was in town, they had a party at somebody else's, you know, somebody's mom's out of town. There was a big rager. I was there. I wasn't supposed to be drinking. Of course, I'm 12 years old. I think somebody there didn't know I was 12 years old and they gave me a beer. I took it. I drank it. And it was like, I still think of this as sort of like a spiritual experience. I drank another beer and it was just like everything I had wanted about interacting, like came alive in me. You know, I was, I was funny. I was able to talk to them. They were laughing at me. All the kids seemed to think I was so cool. I was, you know, running around. I was joking. Um, and, and I, I you know, I kept drinking you know, I, I, I took a shot. I took a, you know, I had a cocktail and I just kept going. And the next thing I know, they're, I'm throwing up over the toilet and the party's like, like only a few hours in. <laughs> and I went to bed and um, the next day I was talking to my cousin and she was like, hey, do you remember when you took your pants off and ran up and down the stairs. And I was like, what are you talking about? There is absolutely no way I did that. Because, because I was so embarrassed to even talk. I, and I was so super modest. Like there is no way I would have done that. So I thought, I thought my, my cousin used to do things like tell me that I, you know, like confessed things in my sleep and things like that. So I thought she was really teasing me. And then she said, uh, no, no, you, you sat at the bottom of the stairs and you started crying and you said that everybody loves me more than you. And I was like, Oh God, that really does sound like me. Cause I really did think <laughs> that I thought everybody loved her and they didn't like me. And she said, Oh my gosh, I think you had a blackout. And I had no idea what that was. And I, you know, I, I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, you can drink so much that you don't remember what you did. And I was like, that's crazy. What do you mean? Yeah. And that was when I realized, and that's a very young age to realize that drinking has this shadow side that I just thought was incredibly creepy and incredibly wrong. And, and, you know, just the fact that I could do things and not remember them didn't seem right at all. And so I got really two very powerful lessons early on, which was that drinking was a path to a self I had always wanted to be. And that if I drank too much, drinking, drinking was a trap door that could open up underneath me and that I wouldn't have any control over what happened. I've always said I'm not a blackout drinker and I still 95% stand by that. But as I was listening to your book, I was thinking, 
how does this apply to you, Mike? Did, did you have blackouts and stuff? And I'm like, not really. But then I started thinking about it. And there was a couple of times, freshman year in college, 1988, at the University of North Texas. One time I went to a fraternity party. And I remember I was super nervous because I was a little boy. I was only like 17. I graduated high school at 17. Mm. And I remember the first part of the night. And I remember drinking because I was so nervous. Then I have like nothing for a few hours. And then a flash, just a quick little flash where I came aware of something that was going on when I was in an alley. I was in an alley somewhere. I don't know where. And then blacked out again, I think. And then I remember being in my dorm room. Mm-hmm. So. That was 100% a blackout. Yeah. There was like, I would say maybe four hours out of six or maybe something like that. I don't know what the math is that I just don't remember. And then another time that I got alcohol poisoning, I remember the first part of the night, they had this any coin buys any drink night. It was any coin that you had in your pocket. It could be a penny. It didn't matter. It's a long time ago. And I remember going up, going up, going up. And then I was ordering tequila shots, which I don't think was a very smart idea. And uh, I remember going up to the bar and I ordered another one. And the bartender just kind of looked at me like, are you sure? Because you, you're wasted, dude. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. And I gave him a penny. And then I don't remember anything after that. I, I kind of remember like two rando girls driving me home in my car that I didn't know. And I was way too loaded to drive. So I obviously asked these two random hot chicks to drive me home. And they're like, and I had a really nice car. So they're like, <laughs> they're like, yeah. And so they jumped in my super nice car with me. And uh, I don't know who they were. And... I don't remember anything after that, except like being at my apartment several hours later. Um, and I wasn't aware that I had alcohol poisoning at that point, mm. but I did. My car was there. The chicks were gone. My mm-hmm. keys were there. So they obviously got me there. I remember something about falling either up the stairs or down the stairs. I don't remember if I fell up the stairs or if I fell down the stairs, but I remember falling. And I remember them kind of maybe like getting me up to my apartment and just like, I think maybe the front door wasn't unlocked or they couldn't get me in there. I think they just left me on the concrete in front of my front door and bailed and left my car and my car keys there and just left me on the concrete in front of my front door. Uh, But those are the only two memories that I have. And your uh, book jogged those memories for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can I talk a little bit about what causes a blackout? Because I find that a lot of people in recovery don't even really know. Yeah. And they don't understand how they work. Yeah. You know, so they're, you know, basically a a blackout. First of all, studies have found that about 50% of, of drinkers will have them. So it's not unique to alcoholics, but it is especially prevalent in alcoholics. Um, because one of the things that it seems to show, like if you're somebody that throws up easily or you don't really drink past that point of um, when most other people would stop, like if, if, if you drink past that point, your body's going to start finding ways to compensate for the having too much alcohol in it. So blackouts come from a spike in the blood alcohol content. It's really the the rapid rise is what causes the blackout. It causes a part of your brain called the hippocampus, which stores, it basically transports short-term memory into long-term storage. So that's why like when you're in a blackout, um, you can still have conversations with people. You know what you're talking about, but if a certain amount of time has gone by, then you'll repeat yourself because you don't have 
have that. that oh, I hate that. Yeah. So I call that getting caught in drunkard loop because people annoying. are just like, yeah, that, that and, and it's one of the only most, it's one of the most reliable red flags for when somebody's in a blackout is when they repeat something they said about two minutes ago. Uh-huh. And you're like, uh, do you not remember? And they don't, they yeah. have no access to the fact that they just said that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the risk factors for blackout are things like drinking on an empty stomach because that'll get you drunker faster, taking shots, drinking liquor, of course. And then one of them is being female. You know, women are actually more susceptible to blackouts than men are. And I think this is, I think this is opposite of how we generally think about it. I mean, people can't see us right now, but you're a big dude. I'm a five foot two woman. I think if you looked at the two of us and said, which of these is a blackout drinker, everybody would choose you, you know, just this, you know, tough guy, you know, like big, no, you're the one that's not going to blackout because your body mass is going to be able to absorb the alcohol. I'm the the, the small woman that's drinking like a guy. And so my body isn't able, women's bodies don't metabolize alcohol as quickly as men do. You know, it's one of the ways that I talk about like nature just insists on some double standards and this is one of them. And so women black out easier than men do. And so our blackout incidence is higher. Um, even though men on average drink a little bit more than, than women do. But anyway, I always like to include those because, you know, I came into recovery knowing that blackouts were a total plague and I had some theories about why they happened. And when they happened, they were terrible. Um, but I didn't really know, like it was a lot of kind of like witchcraft and best thinking, you know, like, oh, uh, I decided that like, oh God, you know, bourbon definitely gives me blackouts. Um, so, you know, one of the ways that I tried to manage my drinking early on was to cut out bourbon, but it turns out there's no difference between bourbon and vodka and tequila. They all have the same amount of alcohol. Um, it's not like having brown liquor makes you blackout more than clear liquor. I wanted to ask you a question about blackouts. Can you feel them coming on? Could you ever feel one coming on? And then I have a follow-up question. Oftentimes, no. The answer is no. Because it always felt like a friggin' trapdoor. It always felt like, like you're watching a film and there's a smash cut and then there's a new scene. It really snuck up on me. These things came from ambush. That was the thing that beguiled me so badly. I will tell you that when I dated somebody for several years and he became more familiar with my drinking, he started to be like, okay, you're, you're getting into that danger territory. Oh my God, how so, scary. So he could start to spot it. What, he, what would you say when he said that to you? Uh, some, it depended on my mood. I mean, sometimes I'd be like, you know, no, I'm not, I'm fine, whatever, you know? And then sometimes it'd be like, okay, okay. I need to, I need to go get water. You know, it, it depended because my relationship with, with alcohol was, you know, it was friend and foe, you know, it was, it was, it was lover and tormentor, you know, it, it was, it was, I, I had such different relationships to, alcohol over the years. And part of my journey through those years was trying to keep this in my life. And so one of the things I need, I knew I needed to do was to stop having blackouts, but I wish I had known those risk factors. And also one more thing I want to say is that there were, there, there's actually two kinds of blackouts and one is sort of fragmentary, which are short and those are much more common, but the ones that I had, which are called on block blackouts, E-N-B-L-O-C, it's a French word. It's the kind that you had when you were 17. It's the hours of time. Those are really freaky and they're much less common. 
I don't remember how I felt about it the next day. I just thought, wow, that was a big night. And I don't really remember a whole lot. And I don't think, I remember having the feeling that things generally did not go well. <laughs> I just remember that. I was like, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I'm sure in a general way, things trended negatively. And that was not a good experience. Yeah. I used to joke that it was God's way of telling me I don't need to know what I did. <laughs> So were you able to um, like drink successfully without blackouts, blackouts four or five, six, ten times in a row and then have one? Or mm-hmm. yeah. really? Oh yeah, God. it was a lot like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And one of the things I did to, to ensure that I would be safe was I would drink beer. I mean, beer was really like uh, how I managed not blacking out. I'm not sure I ever blacked out on just drinking beer. I might have a few times. But, you know, in general, where I got into trouble was... Red wine, cocktails, you know, I, I stopped doing shots at some point. I mean, I started, so I, I told you the, um, the kind of early origin story of my drinking, but I, you know, part of my story is that in high school, I didn't drink that, that aggressively. One of the reasons was because I was really involved in drama. I think, I think having such an intense engagement with something else that gave me sort of community and, and support and I, I needed to be like uh, present for, I think that was one of the reasons. And, and I was aware that people were going to be looking at me. I was very vigilant about my weight during these years, you know, like that kept me from drinking to an extreme. When I got to college though, when I got to college and I went to the University of Texas in Austin and the rails really came off my drinking. And again, I really, uh, you know, much like when I was 11 or 12, you know, I started to have these insecurities about like, oh, I'm not as smart as these people. How am I going to meet new people? Um, you know, I'm away from my family. And I, I it's sort of like it, it felt like it was the glue that connected me to all these people. And when I was with them at parties, I didn't feel less than. I always felt sort of like, oh, I'm bold and I'm, I'm somebody of consequence and I'm funny. And, you know, it was all the things that I wanted to be. And, you know, and I, I hung out with a lot of heavy drinkers. You know, I was going to college in the 90s and it was a lot of, you know, like a, it was like a, like a co-ed back and all, you know, like we all kind of like the girls and the guys drank together and, and sometimes you made out and sometimes you didn't. And then, you know, you danced and it was so much fun. I never wanted to leave that, but I had a couple of these really big blackouts. And when I did, I, I, I exhibited certain behavior that was like, even my friends who thought everything you did when you were drinking was funny. They were all kind of like, um, Sarah, can we talk to you? You know, so I started to be kind of like a problem child in the group, and that was so humiliating to me. And so that I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, you got messy. I got a little messy. I got a little messy. Yeah, I, there were people in my drinking group were like that, and I would I would be like I was kind of the daddy of the group, and I'd be like, "Yeah, we got to babysit Shannon tonight. You know, Shannon's going to get shitty. You know, she's going to get weird. She's going to get mouthy, and she's going to black out." So everybody be aware Shannon's with us tonight. Keep an eye on her. Don't let her walk off with some yep, rando yep. dude. Yep, yep. Which she's going to try to do. Yep, yep, yep. I used to try to do yeah, that. Yeah, don't let her walk off with some rando dude. Uh, everybody watch Shannon tonight because, you know, we, get, we, we we'd use the word babysit. We'd be like, we got to babysit this woman child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and in my group, it felt like we we 
at least for a little while, it felt like we all took turns as that person. <laughs> but then it just seemed like I was playing that role a lot more. Um, and I would have this thing where I would just kind of like say really, like I have these weird aggressive things that I would say and then, you know, like call somebody a bitch or like hit on somebody's boyfriend, like just say yeah. really inappropriate things. And then they'd tell me the next day and I'd be like, no way did I say that, you know, because yeah. everybody knew me as like pretty pretty likable, nice, easygoing person. Yeah. But there was this aggressive personality that would come out. Yeah, I could see the change in people that, that that had that issue. I could see them change over, you know, sometimes 15 minutes or yes. less. They would just get real aggressive and real mean and real yep. mouthy. And I, the problem with me and a bunch of my friends is I hung out with a bunch of girls and guys, but the guys that would, would switch personalities like that, I'd be like, bro, you're going to get us in a fight. You're going to get us. We'd hang out in pool halls with other dudes. And then all of a sudden he's saying super inappropriate stuff yep. about, and I'm like, and I'm like, he's only saying that because he has beer muscles. He's only saying that because oh, I've hand, never heard that term. That's really interesting. Yeah, he's only yeah, saying that because totally. he's got beer muscles. He can take anybody on. Yeah. yeah. And he, I was like, I was like, I'd pull him aside and be like, Darren, you're 150 pounds, bro. And you were talking S to those dudes and they look like they play college football and they look like linebackers. Keep in mind, you're very, you're very skinny and you're not tough. I've seen you get hit before and you just lay down. So please don't <laughs> engage with these guys. You know, I have to say, I think I had a different version of that, which is that being a girl and particularly a small girl, yeah. I got away with a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I had a, <laughs> I had a fairly I don't think it was too chronic, but I would pour beer on people's heads every once that in a while. That is so rude. It is so rude. And I just want to, if you're out there, I apologize. Did you ever get punched? In no, absolutely not. I thought it was hilarious. Like, and, and, and my friends would have to come in and be like, you know, she's really sorry. Like she, she's really drunk right now. Don't um, do that. If you're out there listening, please don't. Do no, that. never do that. Never do that. Don't pour beer on people's heads on girls or dudes. It was always dudes. Oh God. Why? I think I thought it was some sort of, um, I don't even want to say like some sort of like feminist statement, you know, just like this is for the rest of us, you know, and I, I only did, I mostly did that with a guy that I knew and he got used to it and he would be like, oh my God, she's coming with the beer. Um, and then like a little bit or like a splash or you would turn the cup up. Oh no, I would turn the cup upside down. Yeah. 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 And I do this with my friend Dave all the time, but then every once in a while I would do it to somebody else. And then like, yeah, somebody had to have a talking with me and be like, you know, you're going to get us, you're going to get us punched. Like you're going to get the guys punched. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to punch you. Wow. Uh, when did it ever occur to you that you had a problem with alcohol and what did you do about that thought? You've, you've hit on it like a little oh, bit. Yeah, here. right around that time. I was yeah. 20 years old and we were headed to the Texas OU game from Austin. It was a three and a half hour car ride. Yeah. And uh, you know what's funny about that day? I remember we got in the car and everybody was uh, putting together these like, you remember the you know, big plastic cups, you know, that look like kind of swimming pools, <laughs> like portable swimming pools that you're going to drink out of. Yeah. Um, you know, and everybody was putting together like Jack and Coke. And I was like, ah, I don't even want to drink, but I did. And I, I drank, I don't remember how many of those. And we got up to go to the bathroom at some gas station. And that's the last thing I remember. And then I woke up in my parents' house. You were supposed to be going to the Texas OU football game. Yeah. I, well, they, I, I wasn't going to go. I was, I think, cause I'm never a football fan. So I was going with my friends to kind of like hang out in Dallas. Mm -hmm. I woke up at my parents' place. My parents were out of town. Thank God. And I was I was naked and I had a poster from the wall over me like a sheet. <laughs> and I was like, this is so wrong. Like whatever has happened, 
He had a general idea that something had gone wrong. Something in the, the, the dots that connect <laughs> this. What poster was it? Do it was you a remember? James Dean poster. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> it was a James Dean poster that I used to have on my wall, and I, I don't know if it had fallen. I think and you pulled I, it down. I think I probably pulled it down, but why did I pull it down? I mean, again, gosh, drunk logic is such deranged <laughs> Alice in Wonderland, like total uh, no logic at all. So I... The next day, called my my one of my closest friends, who was my roommate. She had been in the car with me that day, and you know, I mean, at this point, I'd had a couple of these nights that we're talking about, where people were kind of like, "Hey, what's you know?" I think you were a little bit off offsides last night, but this was the first one that like she was mad at me. I could sense that she was mad at me, and when I got together later with a group of them, I could feel that a lot of them were mad at me. And that had never happened to me before. And it became, and what was told to me over time, it was a story that kind of got told in small increments that I could take it all at once, was that I had gotten so blasted that I started mooning people when we were stopped on the highway, which is obnoxious. And I thought it was hilarious. And every this is one of these things where like you are 2 a.m. drunk and everybody else is like 2 p.m. drunk. You know, and then I started mooning everybody individually in the car. Again, this inappropriate, what I like to call bad nudity, was unfortunately this weird card, like part of my really far gone drinking. I think sometimes it had to do with how completely modest I was when I was sober, that when I was drunk, it was just kind of like... I'm going to go wild. But I also know that there's also this weird thing with like when people are just not in their right minds, they kind of want to like free themselves. They kind of start stripping. Anyway, this is not like, oh my goodness. And I have to tell you as a young woman, like as a young woman who wanted to be loved and wanted to date somebody and wanted to be, you know, sexy and fun and like hearing this like degrading, weird story that had alienated all of my binge drinking friends who put up with a lot was really heavy for me. And it was the first time that I thought, I think I have to quit drinking. And I was, but I was so young. I went to How a- How old were you when you I was 20. What did you do about that thought? I, I, first of all, I called my best friend who wasn't there that day. And I just like, you know, did this sort of like teary confession of like, I'm scared. I think there's something wrong. And I had kind of known something was wrong for a while, you know, like, like I'm, I think maybe I don't drink like other people. Look, you know, dating back to when I'm like 11 or 12, right? And I went to the student health center and I, I think I spoke to somebody and I got a pamphlet and I kind of looked at it and I, you know, I think, I think I probably like, and, 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 and I said, well, I'm never going to drink, you know, bourbon again because that, and that's what I thought it was. Yeah. I thought, you know, it was, this is bourbon. What was the and, pamphlet? Was that, it was at that test? That yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, it was like one of those <laughs> tests that was sort of like, are you an alcoholic? Did you, how many, what did you get? Had you fail it or what did you do? <laughs> I always say I never trusted those tests, you know, because they said you were an alcoholic. That's why you exactly. didn't trust it. <laughs> well, I remember one of them being like, do you ever drink to get drunk? And I was like, what in the hell? Yeah, why else would you drink? Yeah, that's, that's not, not a fair that's question. A question. That's a trick question. <laughs> that's loaded. It's a loaded question. Um, but one of them was, do you black out? And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I do. And I know, and I knew there was something wrong with it because I had, I had learned that other people didn't. That what happened to me in these, in these, uh, you know, every, what was it like every 10 times I drank, sometimes every 20 times, sometimes every four, you know, changed. Um, 
didn't always happen to other people. But then I started seeing it happen. You know, like I, like my, you know, some of my good friends did have blackouts. And so then, so then you start to kind of diminish it. You know, then you go like, okay, well, like everybody, you know, ah, this is happening to other people. It's not just me. I think I was being dramatic. I need to stop drinking bourbon and I need to, uh, you know, I need to make, make sure I never moon anybody again. To my knowledge, I didn't, um, you know, but like, and I need to win back some of the goodwill of my friends, which I did. They were forgiving. When I was there, when I was right where you are in your story, I had the same thoughts in my head. And this is what I came up with. I, this is, this is what I call the, I need to list. And so in my mind, when I was right where you are in your story, I said, okay, I think I have a problem with alcohol. I probably need to stop drinking. What's wrong with me? Why am I doing this? What's going on? Yeah. How, how can I fix it? Let's how just can, fix yeah, it. I'm fix smart. It. Let's just fix it. Let's just fix this. Uh, so I said, okay, I need to start sleeping during the night and be awake during the day. Cause I used to sleep a lot during the day, but then I'd be up all night. Then I said, I also need to start taking vitamins. <laughs> Cause I'm not taking vitamins. Sure. I should be taking vitamins, sure. but I'm not. I sure. need to start taking vitamins. Um, I need to start working out. I'm not going to the gym. I need to start lifting weights and, and working out. Uh, number four, I need to stop hanging out with all these losers. Yeah. Because all my friends drink hard and uh, as much as I do. So I need to like get away from them. Uh, number five is I need to start going back to church. I don't go to church. I, I probably should be going to church. What am I doing? I'm not going to church. So, mm. you know, vitamins. Oh, another, my six point plan. I need to stop eating such horrible food. That was one of mine too. Because I would get super drunk and then I would go to talk. Taco Cabana. Taco Cabana. Me. And I would go to um, Jack in the Box and they used to have two tacos for a dollar. Dude, I ate so many of those. <laughs> I, I would get wasted and I would go to Jack in the Box. And they would be like, they would look at me and be like, you're here again, drunk. I'd be like, you got any more tacos, dude. They were two for 50 cents. And then the story came out that they weren't even using real ground beef. They were using horse meat. Of course they were. And I didn't care. I was like, I still need those tacos. Those freaking tacos. I ate so many of those. Ugh. And then I used to get, um, at Taco Cabana, I used to get like a, a little like, like, I don't know if it was, a, it was like a quart or like a little serving size of queso and then half a dozen tortillas uh. and just dip them in the queso. And I'd be walking around the party eating that, you know, and just all down my face. Were you and offering stuff. some to other people? Oh, sure. I mean, I was nice enough. Um, but I was, uh, you know, I, 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 I and, and unfortunately for me, you know, one of the things that I had to figure out because as I was drinking more, um, I was getting heavier. I'm, I'm a small person. And so I was, I was getting, um, you know, I, I couldn't fit in my clothes anymore. I, I didn't feel cute or attractive. I wanted to lose weight. So one of the things you do to lose weight as a young woman is that you cut your calories. And so it's very, very hard to cut your calories and drink like, you know, binge drink without blacking out. You know, one of the things that was on my list to do to make myself feel better about myself was actually predisposing me to continuing to have blackouts. You know, like if I skipped dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all my friends, we had nicknames. Like if you were in my crew back in the day, everybody had nicknames and stuff. And I think I would have probably called you trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, is trouble coming or not? They'd be like, she'd be here in 15 minutes. Mm, I had a few people call me that. I'd be like, okay, what's up? What's up? Um, do you, did you have any legal consequences due to your drinking? Surprisingly, no. I mean, given some of the things that I was doing, again, I think there were so many things I did that I just got away with because I was a girl. I did have, uh, I talked my way out of two DWIs. Yeah. I got pulled over twice. Did you have to get out and do the test? Yep. Me too. And, uh, go to. 
and I blew both times. I blew right at the limit, um, <laughs> like right over it. Like, Get out of here. And one of them said, you know, I'll let you take a cab. That was nice. That was nice. And the other one, I was really close to home and, uh, he just said, you got to promise me you'll get home. I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of don't know how I talked my way out of them. Well, you know, it helped that I was really, really on the border. And I was always like really good at charming my way out of things. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of them, I will say the first one I told you about, I was in a bridesmaid's dress. Uh, you know, so I had this like crazy seafoam green thing in my hair and this crazy updo. And he was like, you know, you got to call somebody. And I was like, the only person I know is the bride. And I can't call her on her wedding night. And he was like, just yeah. get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny cause when I got into, oh, and you know, so I didn't have legal consequences, but I did fall down a flight of stairs in New York once when I was super loaded and they were metal brace stairs and I ended up in the hospital with a concussion. That counts. Yeah. So that wasn't legal, but it was medical, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I had a black, I had a giant black eye and uh big knot on my forehead and you know it's it was, classy yeah it's classy <laughs> disaster i uh, i can think of at least three times that i was pulled out of the car by police officers and, and made to do the tests and stuff you know like once was the california highway patrol up in mount baldy california once was down there at marsh and northwest highway and the other time i was in um i think connecticut mm-hmm and I remember being pulled out of the car and, you know, forced to perform the song and dance routine. And uh, they let me go every time. And I was drunk every time. Yeah. And I was like, God. And then, you know what, to be a thousand percent honest with you, then that, you know, a few years ago, that BLM, that Black Lives Matter thing happened. And I started thinking about, you know, white privilege, this, that, and the other. Yeah, and, sure. and I started thinking, I was like, bro, you just lucky. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, when I think about, you know, the other thing I think about is, um, so a lot of my, the worst years of my drinking take place in New York city from uh, the ages of 30 to 36, which is another reason why I wasn't pulled over. Right. Cause I'm taking cabs yeah. during those years, but the extent to which I staggered around that city with a sort of blind trust that other people would take care of me, uh-huh. policemen, cab drivers, bartenders, I just really didn't have this, like it, it was this weird trust fall into the city mm-hmm. that I never really thought that much about. And people would freak out. They'd go like, oh my God, you know, you don't remember how you got home from the bar? And I was like, oh, somebody, somebody help me. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how to explain that other than you loved the city and the city loved you back. I was lucky enough that you that's true. You obviously contributed enough to the city where the city's like, we're going to watch out for this one. I believe that city is wild, man. I've spent so much time in New York City drinking and sober and that is a wild place mm-hmm. i love new york city mm-hmm. i really do um so did you ever go to a treatment center i never did you, you know did. i i um i remember in the in so i started thinking that i needed to quit drinking finally at the age of 33 and uh things were getting really bad i was in new york and i just couldn't manage it anymore and and i i had this I used to have, you remember that show Intervention? 
on Amy. <laughs> yeah, I did. I dude, I used to watch that show. It would come on Sunday nights. Sunday nights were always the time of remorse, right? You know, they were like, "Oh God, what have I done?" And I would get a bottle of white wine. I don't think you're supposed to drink and watching that show. Oh, you're not. No, okay. I don't think so. Okay, well, I did. It's it like wrong. all the criminals watching cops. That's right. And I, well, what I would do is I would I would get a, a a bottle of white wine because it was sort of the gentlest of all the the alcohols. Can I ask to me. you one question for you? You seem pretty classy. Did you ever drink the wine out of those cardboard boxes? Oh, like the Franz, the Franz yeah. yeah. Did you ever do that? Um, no, not as much as other people did. I, I was kind of a wine so. snob. I, I was, a, so. I was you a wine snob. Pretty classy. I yeah, just I spent, by the way, I spent way too much money on wine. I remember at one point I was going to my therapist, and she was really trying to help me cut down drinking. And she was, you know, she really helped me through this passage. But at one point, I told her I was spending fifteen dollars on wine, and she just turned into such a New Yorker. She was like, "I don't want you to drink wine, but I need to tell you, you if you go to Zay bars and you, you know, you get this other kind, it's a lot cheaper, and you don't need to be spending." <laughs> $15 on wine. I was spending way too much money on, on booze. But anyway, um, I would, I would buy a bottle of white wine and I would drink intervention and I would just cry. <laughs> and I would be like, I want some, I really had this fantasy that somebody would intervene and make me stop because I didn't know how to stop on my own. Really? And, you know, I, I had a really difficult job at the time. I was an editor at an online magazine called Salon and, and there were starting to be a series of layoffs. And so I was, you know, by the end, I was like one of the last editors standing. And that meant that I was doing, I was playing several different roles. I was really in over my head. I was working all the time. I was scared to leave. Um, I, I thought about going to treatment center, but, you know, I was scared. I was scared to leave. I, I was really like, I didn't want to leave my work and, and I didn't want to leave people hanging. I already felt so crappy about myself. Um, and I was broke. I mean, this is the other thing. It's Did like you have insurance? Yeah, I had insurance. I probably could have gone to something, okay. you know, some kind of, you know, IOP or something. But um, I, I, I wanted to, to not do that because I was, I didn't want to leave my, the people that I worked with in the lurch because at the time that I quit drinking, I was feeling so lousy about myself. Um, so I didn't do that. And so I've always wondered what it would be like to be in a rehab, you know, I never tried it, but I, but I did go to AA, obviously. Um, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I've mentioned it a few times. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that's a big step. How did you get it to was AA? A very big step. How did you get there? Did you look it up on Google, or you, did so, you? So I also should mention that I, I I got sober briefly when I was 25 because um, that was a a period when I I also knew I was in trouble, and a good friend of mine who was a drinking buddy had gone to AA. I don't think I ever would have done it otherwise. But I saw that this guy had quit drinking and I was like, if that guy can quit drinking, like, <laughs> shoot, maybe I can do it too. So I did it for a little while. I didn't, I, I resented the hell out of it. I was 25 years old. And when I finally got my life back together, I, I decided I could, I could start drinking again. That maybe this had just been like college behavior that yeah, I pulled too totally. much into the twenties, you know, like. How I, long did you last that first time? Six months? No, it was, it was more than a year. Really? Did yeah. you pick up a one year chip? I did. Really? I did. And then I went traveling, you know, I, I sort of like wanted to change my life. I went traveling in South America. Um, you know, I was doing all these things that I was trying to really trying to build a life that, you know, felt good because I'd done these hard things of quitting drinking. I wanted to, to have a life that, that, 
that felt rewarding and travel was something I'd never done before. And I was out in uh, this very small village in Ecuador. And uh, I just was so far from everything. I'd stopped going to meetings. I'd stopped, you know, talking to people. I wasn't, and I just sort of was like, why do I need to quit? Why do I, why do I not drink anymore? And I just started and I told myself that I would take it easy. And, you know, that's good. You made a promise to yourself. I made a promise to myself. And by the second night, you know, I was sort of like looking in all the cupboards, like, where do we get more? Where do we get more? And then, you know, 10 years were me trying to stay, you know, again, trying to balance this table that doesn't want to be balanced. You know, it's like trying to get the sugar packets under the the one leg of the table. I'm sure I could make this work and it just keeps, (laughs) it just keeps not working. Um, I tried so many things. And one of the things I did was, you know, after a relationship that fell apart in, in, in part because of how heavy I was drinking, you know, I was like, I'm going to move to New York. Uh. So I moved to New York, but you know, magical thinking, I'm going to really get a hold of my drinking in New York. Well, no, of course I'm not going to, it's New York. So, um, you know, I I think for a lot of those years, my goal was stay out of AA. Like Uh I I know that I have a problem, but I don't want to go back to AA. Why is that? You just, didn't okay. I just had an allergy to it. I didn't <laughs> like it. I didn't, I, I didn't have, you know, I, I had this sort of feeling of kind of like it's good for other people. Okay. You know, like uh, it, that works, that works for other people and there's no shame in it, Yeah, yeah. but it's, that's, that's not going to be my path. Okay. And so I fought it. <laughs> I fought it. And yeah. so when I went back, you know, when I did the Google search, you know, to like, where did is you really the, do a Google search? I did. And you absolutely. were like 35, 36 at this point. I, I think I probably would have been 33 or 34 when I started going back into the rooms in New York. Okay. Did you ever, what is name? I love the mustard seed group. Okay. I went there. Yeah. I love the it was, seed it was group. not far from where I worked. So that was okay. one that I eventually started going to during lunch. Side note. I was trying to go to that meeting one day and I think it's in the same neighborhood where that TV show by HBO called Sex and the City is filmed, and I it's close to that, the house that they used to Oh, are you talking film. about Perry Street? I think so. Because Perry Street is in the West Village, which is- I was walking is, there, and there, I saw all these girls standing in front of this house. Magnolia. Yeah, there's all these girls, all these pretty girls standing in front of this house taking pictures, and there's people across the street taking pictures, and I'm just a pedestrian. I'm just walking, and I'm like- why are these cabs stopping here and people getting out? Why are they, why is every taking, I didn't watch that show, so I didn't know. So I was just like, what? And then I saw this guy and the girl, a good looking guy, good looking girl across the street and they were taking pictures and I was like, yo, what is the deal? And they're like, oh, you don't know? And I'm like, no, they're like, that's the sex in the city house. Yes, that (laughs) was was um, only a few blocks away from my last place that I lived in New York, um, which is very close to a very fabled uh, meeting called the Perry Street Workshop, which uh, I went to several times. When I finally, like it took me a while to get back into the rooms. Like I was sort of like in the rotating door for a long time. I would go in there on some night when I was feeling desperate mm-hmm. and I would be like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then a few days later I'd be like, you know what? I was being really dramatic. I don't need to do that. And I just kept doing it and kept doing it. I did it for like, you know, I'd, I, I, maybe it would be a week. Maybe it would be like, I'd go as long as a month. Maybe I'd go two months and then something would happen. And I just, I just couldn't conceive of my life as a sober person. I think that was the giant holdup. 
I did not know how to be with friends. I did not know how to be on dates. You know, I badly wanted, by the time I was 34, 35, I'm starting to like, gosh, I really, like I'd had relationships. I'd had very deep relationships, but I really wanted a boyfriend. I really wanted a family. And you know, how am I going to date without alcohol? How am I going to hang out with my friends who, who mostly hang out at the bar? Like, what am I going to do? And I don't want that dead zone. Um, this is the same thing that kept me stuck when I was 21 or 20, by the way. You know, it's just like how I could not conceive of life as a sober person. So, you know, what had to happen for me was just I had to wear myself down over the next year and a half. And, and I think one of the sad things that happened for me was that I just like, it, like booze stopped working. And Talk that was, that. that was a heartbreak. What does that mean to you? It meant to me that the escape and the magic that I had always drank for was gone. I wasn't feeling it anymore. It wasn't giving me the effect. And it was, I was thunderstruck because this had been the escape. I mean, I don't know if this is like a biochemical reaction that starts happening. You know, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I don't know either. Spiritual, maybe I, it started to work against me and I had started to also drink alone a lot. You know, I wasn't drinking as much (laughs) with other people and there wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't an elevation of being drunk. There was a lowering, you know, everything felt sadder and I I started throwing up a lot easier too. That was another thing that started happening to me. Uh. And uh, I remember that I, one time when I was drunk, I wrote in Sharpie, it doesn't work anymore. And I put it over my workstation. And for the longest time, I didn't even know what that meant. Like I had no idea what I was trying, like what drunk me was trying to say to sober me. But I left it there. That's cool. I left it there because I knew it was something. And, you know, and to me, I think it was just like, like none of this works anymore. The denial, the alcohol, That's the going in and man. out. Man, it That's was scary. scary. It was a scary ass place. And I'll tell you, people talk about this, you know, where you, you reach this point where you feel like you can't go forward and you can't go back. Yeah. And that means where the hell do you go? Yeah. They, and, and a lot of recovery meetings we go to, they call that the jumping off place. And I was there probably summer of year 2000 in Oceanside, California, and I was drinking every day and I was, I could no longer conceptualize my world drunk and I could no longer conceptualize or execute my world sober. And I don't know how to continue drinking successfully. And I certainly don't know how to get sober successfully. So I was stuck in this middle ground and that's where I was getting towards the bottom. Like you said, my life was spiraling down and I was mm-hmm. getting lonelier and lonelier and darker and darker. And my body was falling apart. I started to have physical manifestations. You were talking about, um, vomiting. My body started to swell and my eyes started to close. Mm-hmm. And, um, I really looked very sick. Like when I would mm-hmm. see myself in the mirror, I'd be like, wow, bro, you do not look like a healthy 30 year old man. Mm-hmm. You look very different than that. And mm-hmm. so I was scared, man. And then I just said the drunk's prayer. At some point, I actually know exactly when it was. It was 9.30 p.m. on October the 9th, uh, 2000 in Oceanside, California. Actually, I was in Carlsbad, California, and I said, God, help me. I don't know how, I, I don't know what to do. 
and the answer that came back to me, not Thunderbolt style um, and not quickly, but over the next 12 hours, the answer came that came back to me is you need to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous because I had been in before. Yep. And so the answer that came back to me is you need to go back to AA. You need to get another sobriety date. You have to get another sponsor. You have to get another set of literature. You have to get another um, effort going. you got to pull it together enough to get there because you know that the people that are there at that place, because you've been there before, you've seen them, they know how to successfully live life sober. And you apparently do not. Mm -hmm. You've demonstrated it to yourself uh, and the police department and any girls and any employers or in your family and yourself that you cannot successfully uh, drink, you know? You just can't. Well, uh, this same thing for me, you know, they call it the jumping, they call it the jumping off point. Well, I felt like it was the crushed in the corner point. Um, you know, I, there was nothing of hope in me and I had tried everything else to do it myself. I really very badly did not want AA to be the answer. <laughs> I wanted, does. nobody does, <laughs> nobody but does. I, but I thought, I thought so, I felt so uniquely in that corner because you go into the rooms and everyone's all talking about how great it is. And I'm like, what is wrong? with these people yeah. <laughs> I, this is my worst nightmare and yeah. they all seem really happy to be here which obviously that means they're not like me okay that's what i kept thinking yeah. that means they're not like me because <laughs> they want to be here i am fighting this with every fiber of my being so i had to cross off the list of everything i had to try on my own i mean i was going to do 90 yoga classes in 90 <laughs> days and i was going to read x y and z self-help book and i was going to you know i podcast weren't around but what i about promise a cleanse? you you could have done cleanses I, absolutely cleanse uh what about baths you need probably take some long baths I, that was always a part of my health <laughs> believe me you know i i had a terrible uh, booze always um made me wake up at like three or four in the morning yeah so it really disrupted my sleep yeah and i'd always take these really super hot baths yeah um sometimes i would fall asleep in the bathtub and that was always oh, scary it's not good not good that's but, how whitney houston died well yes um yeah yeah it is 100 percent. yeah she yeah. woke up drunk and high and got in the bathtub and never got out of that bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Um, so I try, I'm such a stubborn person that like every time I would come in and they'd be like, you know, like you, this is how we do it. I'd be like, I think I have a better way. <laughs> so I had to prove to myself that I couldn't do it. I had to be beaten down. Yeah. You know, like I was losing things within my body and my friendship circle and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that really brought me down was just my attempts repeatedly, my best efforts were proving futile. And so even if I thought these people were crazy in this room, you're exactly right. There was one thing they were doing that I wasn't doing. They were staying sober. Yeah, putting time together. Exactly. I couldn't do that. I could not put time together, but I knew that they could because I had been going to meetings before and a guy chose to leave and drink again, but I knew when I was there, I was paying enough attention. I was like, I was like, remember that one dude you like, you don't know his name, but remember when he had three years? Oh my God. I remember when I, I when, like, when what? I, I talked to somebody that had 90 days and I honestly thought that was like superhuman <laughs> or he was lying or she was. Lying. Yes, exactly. There's no way 90 days. And so, yeah, there was obviously something happening yeah. that I couldn't access on my own. So I want to talk to the listener for a minute. If you're still out there in the starting blocks and you're thinking about getting out of the drinking game and getting out of the drugging game and heading into AA and, and trying again or trying for the first time, just be aware that 
you know, none of us really wanted AA to be the answer. None mm-hmm. of us, none of us really wanted to be an alcoholic, and none of us wanted to go to friggin' AA. But in hindsight, it not end up for most of us being maybe the best thing that's ever happened to us because several reasons why I won't go into why, but it, it ends up that it's a good thing for me. And that's one thing that taught me in early sobriety that I really wasn't aware of what was good for me. I always thought that I was a real good labeler of good and bad. Like I thought yep. for sure that I've. I'm a good labeler of good. I'm a good labeler of bad, but I had to let go of that. Did you ever have a moment of clarity that sent you into like hardcore, just getting all the way in? Like you talked about, you know, your second attempt at 33, 34, 35, trying to get back in, you were in, then you were out, then you were in, you were out. What, 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 what made you switch gears? Did you have a moment of clarity or did you just finally just say whatever? I feel like I had so many moments of clarity. I feel like every Sunday I would wake up with this moment of clarity, you know, that was like, it's going to be different. And then it wouldn't be. And, and the last time that I did this, you know, the last time that I drank, I was at a friend's wedding and it was, there were like a lot of like really important people there. Like she knew like fancy, you know, like writers and, you know, it was, it was just like, it was the kind of people that you really want to impress. And I just had, a you know, like, I remember talking to this guy at a table and then I was like, woke up in my house the next day and I had no idea what I had done. That's scary. Did I moon everybody? <laughs> you know, like, I, I mean, you, you have, you start to have these, like, these like nightmare reels of things that you've done in the past and you have no idea who you have to apologize for. And what sort of stunned me about it was that I wasn't scared. It was kind of like, oh, that's just what I do. Like there was a normalcy to it. You could have run that wedding. Well, that's the thing. Did you? No. Oh, okay. I, I've since spoken to that woman. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I've actually also talked to people who, who did have that experience where they did that. Yeah. Weddings are, are dicey territory. For real. Yeah. Um, so I, I just remember thinking like, this is going to be my life. Is that like, I'm, I see, this is actually interesting. I think that part of what was the pivot point for me, and I didn't know it at the time, is that I actually gave up trying. Like I gave up hope. I was like, I can't quit drinking. I'm, I'm never going to be able, like I'm just hopeless. And I had this really sinking feeling because I had tried everything. And I called my mom that night and you know, I had never talked to my mom about how bad things were and I'm really close to my mom. So I had to keep her at arm's length about a lot of this stuff. But I told her just how badly I was scared. And I did know that once I said that, I couldn't take it back. It was this real no backsies moment. Yeah, once they know, they know. Once they know, they know. And there was going to be, and you you're know. you the one that told them. Exactly. <laughs> you sold yourself out. Exactly. And my mom, you know, was like, it's, it's weird in this way that like I couldn't care for myself but I could care for my mom who was scared for me. And I've never heard it explained like that before. And I knew I had to stop for a little bit. And so I actually started calling my mom every day. To, I know a lot of people that do that. Yeah. Yeah. I sponsor a lot of guys that do that. Really? Yeah. They call me every day and they call their mom every and day. And they call their mom? Yeah. I've never heard people about, to me, it was just, I was just putting together the guardrails that I needed because <laughs> okay. I wasn't ready for AA yet. 
And then there was this, actually this one day when I went to a movie mm -hmm. and I forgot to tell her and I come like, I just didn't even think about it. And she was trying to get a hold of me and she was freaking out. And I was like, Oh, you know what? My mom is not a sponsor in the program. She does not like, I, I'm putting too much pressure on her. I need to be doing this with someone that has a little bit more experience doing this. So I, um, started, I had started to go to meetings in, in Manhattan, which I had never gone before. I'd always gone to Brooklyn meetings. So this was a whole new sort of like AA, this was Perry street and mustard seed. And, uh, you know, some other, there was a really great Sunday meeting that I would go to. And, um, you know, I, I got a sponsor. I didn't want to, but I, but I really felt like I have to try to make this work. I have to try everything. I, I, I had, I had failed so many times I had to try. And, uh, so yeah, so that's what I started doing. And, and I also went, one of the, one of the things that was really great in, in my early year of sobriety was that I found a morning meeting. That was great for me because if there was an evening meeting, I would rationalize not going to it all day. And so like, I just needed to get it over with, do it in the morning. And then it was really great because it kind of like set me right for the rest of the day. Are there a difference in the tempo and style and tenor of the meetings in the different boroughs of the Manhattan area? And like, you said, you, why did you go to Brooklyn instead of Manhattan? Because you don't want to see anybody you knew? Or no, I lived in Brooklyn. So okay. I had moved. Um, you know, I think Brooklyn is um, a little bit, it was a little bit younger. Um, I also say, I mean, this is going to sound really shallow, but there were like famous people in the, in the New York, in the Manhattan AA, you know, uh, I, I, and it was, it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is, this is different. Isn't that weird? Yeah. When you see celebrities in meetings. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it felt like in, in Brooklyn, it felt sort of like, um, bougie, uh, you know, kind of like it, it was more family friendly. It just depended because of the, the area I was living in. And then in Manhattan, it was much more like high and low, like people that were very well to do and people that were really kind of like just off the street. I think there was something about that mix that appealed to me. Um, just this, like everybody fits here. Cause there were a lot of meetings where I'd look around and I would just be like, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. And you know, in the Manhattan meetings, it was sort of like, there were people above me. There were people below me. That wasn't the point. You know, the point was that it was all kinds. And I think that kind of disrupted my trying to look for differences. What did you think when you saw the word God on the wall at your first few recovering meetings? And even when you came back, what were you thinking when you saw that it was a higher power based deal or a God deal? I mean, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, not, not the program for me. <laughs> that's what you, that's <laughs> I'm what in thought. the wrong room. <laughs> yeah, that, me too, man. I was like, how dare you? What? This is a bait and switch. Yeah, um, cult, whatever. Uh-uh. No, it, and you know, and you, you add, like it, it brought me back to those youth group meetings which I did not have a comfortable feeling with, not have comfortable memories about. You add to the fact that a lot of AA, you know, is in church basements. So a lot of times, this is the first time I've been back to a church. You're on the property. So I'm, exactly. I'm on the property. And uh, yeah, I just was like, yeah, that's, that's not my deal. And um, it took a while. It took a really long while for me to get over the hurdle of that word. I mean, for a while I was just sort of like, uh, I'm going to just ignore that part. That's the whole thing though. 
How are you going to ignore that? Well, and that eventually came. And then, then, uh, you know, because, because people early on were like, you know, if the God thing doesn't, um, doesn't sit with you, just like, don't worry about it right now. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And then <laughs> they, they, they trick you <laughs> they because trick you. then you arrive at the point where you realize like, <laughs> that's the friggin' deal. It says it in the book. It says the entire purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous is to introduce you to power greater than yourself with which you can solve all your problems. And I want to say one thing about that real quickly. In early sobriety, when I very first started sponsoring other guys, it was my first, you know, five or six guys that I sponsored. I thought about myself and I took myself and my feelings into account. And I was like, yo, Mike, remember that you were horrified when you got here and you saw the word God. And um, I would tell myself, I'd be like, you need to slow play these dudes that you're sponsoring and soft sell them and, and just keep it real. Keep the God part to a minimum and just kind of, you know, let's speed, let's feed it to them slow. Let's just, and then later I was like, I was like, Mike, don't do that, man. What are you doing? There is no non God part. There is no non higher power part. The only thing that we have to offer here is a spiritual solution to a physical, you know, allergy and a mental obsession. We don't, there is no door number two. That's right. And, and there's ways to think about it, though. I mean, there's different. The, what I would say is maybe you don't slow sell them, but I would encourage them to think. I would encourage them to think expansively about the word God and what it could mean. Totally. And I would highlight the phrase, which I think is the brilliant phrase and one of the many brilliant phrases in the program, which is God as we understood them. Totally. That gives, I mean, that takes a word that can feel very constricting to people mm. and it casts a very, very wide net. And I think to, to, to be generous in your thinking, expansive in your thinking about what God is and could be is, is one of the keys to this. It's a pretty low hurdle that we have for, yes. for believing in entry. But I believe even as low as we have the barrier and the hurdle to getting in, I think probably thousands and thousands, if not millions of people have died because they couldn't clear that hurdle. I think that's probably right. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't get there. Uh, I didn't want to clear that hurdle. I didn't want to attempt that hurdle. I didn't want to acknowledge that hurdle was there, but I got administered such a terrific beating by my addiction and alcoholism. I got humbled enough to where I was like, okay, well, I don't know what else to do. I have tried everything. I can't think of anything else to try except to just continue to go down this road that I'm on and die or go to jail or go to institution or something or go over there and try to do what these guys are going to be suggesting and telling me to do over here. So I will tell you, I think that the spiritual part of the program has been the most challenging part for me. And that's part of why it's been also one of the most profound. Yeah. Are you going to, what are you doing now as far as spirituality is concerned? Are you going to church? Are you doing yoga? Are you, what are you, I mean, what are you doing on your spiritual stuff? Well, man, I thought we were going to build up to this question. Oh, I we we going to take a while, uh, you know, <laughs> and talk a little bit more about it. Now I got to spit out my bona fides. Well, I'm just curious what you're doing today. Well, uh, I have been saying the third step prayer every morning since I was pretty early in sobriety. And yeah. that's going to sound small, but that's actually a huge deal it's for me. It's huge for anybody. Um, I remember the first time that I got down on my knees and I prayed, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and I think what's so fascinating about that is that I was in a room by myself. <laughs> and when I think about all the parties that I was in with a bunch of people where I was on my knees vomiting into a toilet and never cared if anybody walked in, yeah. I find that disjunction so fascinating and you know i think probably one of the reasons why i felt so embarrassed is that 
I did have an innate awareness that there is something beyond me. Otherwise, nothing is watching me. Nothing is there. There's nothing, you know, like, yeah. like the very fact that I have some hang up about this posture yeah. suggests that there is something about it. Yeah. And what I found as I very stubbornly started saying this prayer in the morning was that uh, it helped me. And that, you know, I was such a, like, well, prove to me, what does it mean? You know, like, it, eventually for me, I'm too practical-minded. <laughs> when I started seeing that saying this in the mornings helped me and helped shape my day, then I was sold. You know, there's a, there's a line by C.S. Lewis, who is a sort of philosopher, religious scholar, and he says, you know, I don't pray because it changes God. I pray because it changes me. I can't tell you what the prayer is doing. This is sort of one of the things that I've had to balance is my own sort of, I, I have had to open up to the mysteries of what's beyond me, that there is a power that is greater than me. There is something beyond me. I don't control the universe, not even close. Um, there is some operating logic that I may never know and I have to open myself up to that while also being sort of true to my own limits of like, I don't, I don't know who God is. Like to me, it's all about mystery. It's not about answers. Um, so prayer is, is sort of my primary. And then I also really feel like we can talk a little bit more about this later maybe, but like, I've really gotten a lot back into meetings. And I think that is also another way of my spiritual connection. Um, because for a while, I mean, I'm 12 years into this and I can tell you, like, I took a little break for a while. <laughs> I love it. I want you to be honest about that. Let's, yeah. let's dip into that a little bit later. I want to read to the guys real quick, the guys and girls out there listening. So I want to read from page 63 of the big book. You were just talking about the third step prayer. So I want to read this real quick. Uh, it says, we are now in step three. Many of us said to our maker, as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with that. You start that again. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker, as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I might better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. Can you tell me about your AA sponsor? How did you get one and how have they helped you? Sure. Well, I'll tell you about the sponsor that I got when I was in New York. Um, and this is sort of in, in, in the run of my AA that actually stuck. Right. So I had this sponsor and, and basically, you know, like I, I went for somebody that was, you know, she was, she was smart. She was a deep thinker. She was cool. She was a little bit older than me. Um, and one of the things that she did was she asked me to call her every day and go to a certain number of meetings. Well, um, I didn't like that. <laughs> um, you know, like either, either one of those points. No, or? because I want, I wanted to go to the, I wanted to go like once a week. <laughs> okay. And I didn't want to have to call her every day. It really bugged me. <laughs> and, and so what I started doing, uh, was like, I would, I would like grudgingly do it at first. And then I started lying. Oh no. And I would start to say like, oh, I was sick yesterday or like I was really busy. And she was like, 
uh, hey, you need to not lie. You need to tell me, like, why didn't you go to a meeting? And I'm like, well, because I don't like it. And she's like, okay, well, don't pretend that you were sick because you're just doing the thing that you used to do when you were drinking, which is pretending that you're somebody that you're not. And if you don't want to go to a meeting, you need to tell me. And I was like, right, but I don't want to hurt your feelings. And she's like, you don't need to worry about my feelings. I'm not going to care. Because I had this thing where like, I thought in my head, like I needed to succeed for her to feel good about herself. (laughs) And so if I told her that I thought a lot of this stuff was BS, then it was going to hurt her feelings. So I would pretend. And then this is part of what was keeping me stuck before then, because I would basically feel like, I couldn't tell you that I didn't like this program. And so I would just have to kind of quietly retreat from it. And the, this was such an interesting thing to me. I was like, she, she was like, if you don't want to call me or you don't want to go to a meeting, I want you to be honest about it. So like, I think it was like a couple days later, I called her and I was like, she didn't answer, but it was a voicemail. And I was like, so I didn't go to a meeting today because I didn't want to go to a meeting. Okay, bye. And she was like, okay, well, at least you said the truth. And this was, um, this was a disruption of a pattern that I had kept up, which was lying to make people feel more comfortable, to make people see me the way that I wanted to be seen. It was something that was keeping me stuck. And it was, it was pointing out, I had to own my own sobriety, you know, like, if I didn't want to call her, admit that I didn't want to call her, or tell her, like, I think this is stupid, which I did. And she was like, well, here's why I think it's, you know, I think you should do it. And, you know, but we started to have these conversations that for me felt very tense because I had been conflict avoidant. <laughs> did you ever have any epiphanies or like what changed? Cause something had to obviously change. You can't stay sober 12 years off of thinking like, I don't want to go to meetings. I don't really like the program. Well, one of the things that starts happening is, um, by the way, I never liked calling her every day. I really, and, and I didn't, you said you make your, your sponsors do that. They call me every day. They, they, I used to try to do that. I, you know, years 10 to 15, when I was sponsoring people, I'd be like, you need to call me every day. You need to go to 90 meetings a day. I backed off of that. And I really just want to get to know them. Just like, sounds like you was going on with you. And I tell them that I'm like, dude, I want you to call me and I would prefer you to call me versus texted me. Yeah. And I would prefer you to call me versus email me. And the reason why is because I want to get to know you, dude. Like yeah. I don't know you. I need to figure out what makes you tick. I, exactly. need to, I need to figure out your ups. I need to figure out your downs. I want to hear your voice inflection. I want to hear your tone. If I don't answer, then that's a free pass for you. That's a good day for you. Just leave me a voicemail and whatever. But I really want to get to know you. And the reason we're trying to set this relationship up now where we have a relationship and I know you and you know me is so when the storms come and the bad times come, or even the really good times, like you win the lottery or whatever, we have a relationship established and you're used to calling me. You're used to my voice. You're used to dialing my phone number and we're used to having a relationship and talking because at some point something's going to happen in your sobriety or we're both going to have to dig down and bear down and figure out which way is up for you. 
Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, so that is exactly what I want to do too. And you know, and for for that reason, like I, you know, I have never in, in, enlisted the like you have to call me every day rule. I never liked it, um, and I don't inflict it on other people. That said, I do want to get to know the person that I'm sponsoring, and that is what I wanted with my own sponsor. You know, and that's what I eventually got. You know, we would we would have more. You know, it's like okay, fine. You don't like calling me every day. Well, then let's make let's make sure we have time and we talk. Um, and you can share with me what, what is roiling you about this program? Let's talk about it, you know? And, and I was able to kind of surface a lot of the things that I had been afraid to say. Um, the other thing that happened in that time was that I started to actually genuinely like going to meetings. Um, I started to actually get something out of it. I remember I would never participate um, I was always the person that was kind of sitting in the back. And then one day it was like my, my cat was really sick and my cat was like everything to me. And I just ended up like blurting out all this nonsense, you know, about my cat, which <laughs> I don't think I was really talking on the program at all, but, but it let people get to know me. Um, you know, I needed to make myself vulnerable talk about like, like it was very difficult for me as much as I wanted people it was weird I had a lot of like I want to be close to people but I'm but I'm not sure I want to be part of this group and so like I needed to break through some of that and some of the ways that I had to break through that was telling them in, in the beginning like part of my discomfort about it I'll hear guys or girls come in and they're right where you are in your story and right where you are in your sobriety and they'll come in, they'll be super serious and they'll sit down and they won't talk most of the time. But then when they finally do open up, they'll say something like this. I'll be like, my name's Jason and I'm alcoholic and I don't really like this group and I don't really like being here and um, I don't like these people and it's really hard to find a parking spot. I can never find a parking spot at this group and I'm just not sure about this program. I'm not sure about sobriety. And like, they're telling the truth. They're like checking in, telling the truth. And then after they're done, everybody goes, ha, 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 ha. Oh my God. Like 40 people laugh. Like he did not tell that story. So if 40 people could laugh at once. Oh my gosh, you're taking me back because I remember this meeting in uh, the West Village where this guy was like, raised his hand and he was like, I hate AA. I think you're all in a cult. I can't believe you're doing this to me. And, and I want, you know, and I want to get the hell out of here. And everybody just was like, awesome. Yeah, like, this is great. And like, he's it, looking around. It, and I just was like a gog. Like I had no idea. I think that's an amazing part of this program yeah. is that, you know, it really does this thing where you can say what's on your heart, what's on your mind. In fact, you have to, and people will say, okay, thanks. Keep coming back. And this, to me, this is the opposite of social media yeah. because social media is a place where, you know, everybody wants to chime in and judge you and, 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 you know, like it's nothing but crosstalk, right? <laughs> and, and this is a place where That's whatever true. you want to say. There's even a crosstalk section. Well, exactly. Got the, the comments. Call like, the, like, reply. Exactly. <laughs> That's funny. And this is just something where it's the opposite. Yeah. Everybody gets to say what is on their mind or their heart for three to five minutes, whatever the, the sort of limit is in your group. Yeah. And you have to listen to it. And sometimes these people, they, people talk kind of nonsense. Yeah. And a lot of times it's stuff that you think, you know, as they start talking, you're like, I don't even want to listen to this. And I can't tell you the number of times that somebody has said something. And then, um, you know, it's like, oh God, 
that person actually had a lot more co- in common with me than I thought. Yeah, they, they, were blow, going they to. blew up your Tuesday. The, exactly. <laughs> You're like, well, I thought that person exactly. was going to say some terrible stuff. And and I really think, you know, when I think about my first sponsor, um, you know, it was it was really surfacing what I really thought, not what I thought she needed to hear. And be honest about this. Yeah. And trust that she is strong enough to be able to <laughs> she take, can take that. the truth from you. Yeah. I mean, I you know, she kind of laughed her. at me. You're you know, it's just like, a, I'm, I'm, you're not, anything you do is not going to, like, yeah. like, I'm stable over here. Yeah. You're not that big a deal. You're, you're not, not gonna that blow, big a deal. You're not that big a deal. You're not going to blow me up with your thoughts about whether you like to go to meetings or whether you don't like to go to meetings. Exactly. A lot of times when those people in those AA meetings come in and they say what some people would say is nonsense, but I can tell they're telling the truth. A lot of times I walk up to the afterwards and I'll be like, I really liked what you said today and I'll, and I'll see you tomorrow. Come back tomorrow. And I don't think they're expecting that because they just said, I hate AA. I hate this group. You come up to them and you're like, Hey man, I really liked what you said. Come back and see us tomorrow. They must walk away going, what? What? I just blew that group up and just said, I doubted God and I, their literature was dumb and I don't like their, (laughs) their seats are very uncomfortable. You know, they're terrible seats. The seats often are really bad. I mean, you have to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. With those metal folding chairs. Oh my God. It can be a beating. A lot of what I found was that I used that sponsorship relationship as a kind of training wheels to take into other relationships in my life. Like I would learn to have more difficult conversations learn to be a little bit more honest, learn to ask for what I needed, um, learn to speak up for myself, you know, and that was something that I needed to do. That's I had beautiful. relied, I had relied on alcohol to sort of be the release valve for like how I really felt about it. Because things. you didn't present, because you didn't possess that skill set. Exactly. So you would use alcohol and drugs to some way acquiesce your way through that situation because you didn't know how to talk to people or be honest with people. So yeah, a lot of times our relationship with our sponsor, our other fellow friends in recovery, it's about learning how to be vulnerable. It's about learning how to tell the truth. It's about, it's okay to tell people that you're having a bad day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's okay to check in and be like, yo man, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not getting it today. I don't know what to do. And a lot of times your fellow friends in recovery will have a, a good, a good solution for you. They'll ask you questions like hard questions are like, have you eaten anything today? And you'll be like, you'll be like, no, dude, it's four o'clock and I haven't eaten anything, but I've drank a lot of coffee and I've smoked a lot of cigarettes. And you'll be like, well, so it's four o'clock in the afternoon. You're falling apart. You're having a shitty day. You haven't eaten today, but you smoked a lot of cigarettes and you had a lot of coffee. Let's take a look at that. Why don't you, let's go get something to eat. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, (laughs) sometimes one of the nicest things they can do is just reflect you back to yourself, you know, gently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or sometimes not so gently. Or sometimes not so gently. Um, You know, but uh, I think I always... I benefit from that accountability. You know, sometimes I get, re- I'm somebody that gets really lost in my own mind. Oh, really? You overthink stuff? Ooh, Have you boy. ever done? <laughs> oh boy. I'm like, a, I got a PhD in that. And, um, you know, and then also some of the things that I've done, not with, you know, cause I ended up moving back to Dallas and I got a different sponsor because I was in a different city during those years, which were sort of two through five. You know, one of the things that I did was to, you know, she had certain ideas that like, I don't think you should date that guy. And I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to date that guy anyway because I'm going to own my own choices. I hear that happen all the time. I had to, do, you know, and like, like whatever my sobriety, if it's going to be worth something to me, I have to trust my own gut eventually. And okay, that relationship didn't work out that great, but you know what? I needed to learn that. And it didn't work out that badly either. You know, like she thought it was going to be a catastrophe. And I was like, you know what? This is somebody that I think I, I want, I want to date for a while. 
Let's talk about sex and sobriety and dating for Ooh. a minute. Let's talk about sex. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, here's the deal. I'll go first. I came into this program single. And what I realized in hindsight is that I did not have a lot of good tools that would allow me to function in a relationship as a good partner, as a male. And so what I had to do was I had to make a lot of mistakes in early sobriety. Just because I stopped drinking doesn't mean I was going to be a good boyfriend all of a sudden. It means yeah. that I needed to realize that I was deficient in a lot of areas. And that happened by people calling me out on my behavior in early sobriety. And what I mean in early sobriety for me was years one to five. I'm not talking about like the first couple of weeks. I'm talking about the first five years of sobriety. I made a lot of mistakes. I, I, I tried a lot of things and um, I guess I learned from all of them. Some were painful. I probably hurt some other people and I probably hurt myself, but I got to the point where I had about eight years sober and I started thinking about like, I think I'm one of like, I might want to get married and have kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, at the time I was 38 and uh, I was like, well, what's that going to look like? And so I talked to my sponsor and he's like, he's like, well, Mike, what I want you to do is I want you to get a piece of paper and a pencil. And I want you to write down all the qualities and attributes that you want your future wife to have. We're going to start looking for her. You might already know her. You might not know her, but what I want you to think about while we're going through this process is I want you to pay attention to your sobriety and I want you to work well, because what we're doing right now is you're in the process of getting ready to meet her. If you don't already know her, we're going to take the next 12 to 18 to 24 months and we are going to be getting you ready to meet her. Just like we assume and hope and know that she's out there getting herself ready to meet you. She's doing work on herself, getting ready to meet you. So when you guys do come together, you'll have a vision of what you want and you'll be able to get it going. Now I'm married. Now I met her. Now I have a kid. So yeah, it worked. It worked out for me. As far as the sex part goes, um, before I got sober, alcohol was a big part of my sex life and my Go sex. Figure. Yeah, it was a big part of my sex life and my sex conduct. Either I was drunk or my partner was drunk or we were both drunk to lower our inhibitions. Absolutely. And so there's a line in the sand and that line in the sand is called my sobriety date, October the 10th of the year 2000. And post that, I can't have sex drunk anymore. I've got to be sober because I'm sober. So I can't do it that like that anymore. So I had to learn how to, um, to do that and connect with the, with the, you know, I like girls. So I had to learn how to connect with a female and I had to learn how to like get a relationship going. I learned how to learn how to physically have sex sober. And it was, uh, very, very strange and very, very weird and very, very awkward for me at the beginning because I started to think about sex for me differently really differently when I got sober and really, really differently after I got sober five years and was looking for a, a partner, you know, and I had to learn like more about like love versus lust sure, and partnership versus me being super selfish mm. and uh, like having sex with a purpose and a vision. And I did some things in sobriety with my wife that I've never done with any female, which is I was actually f trying to get her pregnant like really trying to get her pregnant. And then before that, all I was trying to do was really not get anybody pregnant. And that's a very different mindset for a guy to have sex with tons and tons and tons of girls and think, please don't let her get pregnant. Yeah, please, exactly. don't let her get pregnant. Yeah. please don't want to get pregnant. And then, and then get sober and change and get married. And then now I'm, I'm, I'm coming at the situation where God, please let her get pregnant. Mm -hmm. Please let her get pregnant. Please let this work. Please let, we want to have a baby. So I'm just telling you, it's been a, the pendulum has swung very wildly 
about that. And I understand from some comments you made to me earlier that you're working on your next book about um, sex and dating. Can we talk a little bit about that from your side? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, my, my, so my second memoir is about being single in my 40s and not having kids. And I had actually wanted both of those things. I had wanted to get married. I had wanted to have children. I actually always envisioned my life in A would be a little bit like the life cycle that you just described. You know, there'd be a couple years of, you know, playing around and then and then I would get sober I mean not sober I mean I, then I would get serious and sort of meet my partner um, that is not what happened but what did happen you know let me go back to the beginning and say that dating was probably one of the things that I put off the most. I mean, in terms of like, I was just really scared. They say, you know, I remember when you first get into sobriety and they say like, don't date for the first year. And it feels like forever because I was very lonely when I, when I got into sobriety. But then as time went on, I was so uncomfortable in my body and I was so uncomfortable with other people that I started feeling like, oh, I don't know that a year is enough time, like maybe like two or three <laughs> years. Like, you know, I, I think I need a little. It was so strange to me because I had always considered myself kind of advanced and sophisticated about sex. You know, one of the things I didn't talk about, but along with drinking early, I became kind of sexually active early. And I always was, you know, prided myself on being one of these, these teenagers that was a little bit blase about this and the way that I saw other characters in movies, you know, it's a creature of pop culture, you know, like, oh, it's no big deal, you know. When I got sober, I think that was when I started to realize, oh, wait, I actually think it is a big deal. And I've been drinking my way through that the whole time. And I didn't realize that I was numbing and distancing from these parts of myself that actually do think it is a high stakes thing to be close to another person, to let them near. Even things like kissing someone, which just seemed like really not a big deal. I mean, like, look, like, is there a lower stakes engagement? But when I was first sober, it was just like, oh my God, you're going to take your mouth and put it on somebody else's mouth? I felt like a 12 year old. And so when I started dating, you know, I had to really make space for this person that was sort of like an adolescent in this 36, 37-year-old woman's body, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's for real, 100%. Yeah, and for me, it- You're masquerading as a woman, but look, you're rolling around with some teenage emotions I and thoughts and ideas. I absolutely was, because I didn't really understand that I'd always <laughs> used alcohol to bypass these uncomfortable feelings. So I had never learned to kind of get through them on my own. I would go on these dates and the way that it manifest for me was that I was just like absolutely like closed off and like, you know, they drop me out, you know, they'd get to my door to say goodbye and I'd be like, okay, bye. You know, like, like the road runner, like there's like a cloud of dust in my wake. Beep, beep. Yes. And it took a while for me to just start feeling comfortable with myself so that I could start feeling comfortable with another person. I had, you know, the, the relationship that I was talking about with somebody that, that my sponsor didn't think I should date because she didn't think it had necessarily the kind of long-term potential that I wanted. I mean, this wasn't like maybe generously, we would say this person didn't have marriage material, but I did love him deeply and I did get to have a steady sexual relationship with him that allowed me to have the first sober sex, like, you know, 
I, I, had, I had done it once with this one guy, like just like to rip the bandaid off and it was kind of like terrible. And I was like, oh my God, I think sex is going to be just like awful. I think maybe sex is just awful and I don't want to have it. But the truth is, is that sex with strangers is often awful and sex with people that you don't like is often awful. But sex with somebody that you care about is actually like something near, can be something near like a sacred thing. And it can be incredibly beautiful, meaningful. I didn't know what kind of sex I liked. I mean, God, cause I just used to like get really drunk and then go really wild. And you know, it, it took me a while to realize part of what I liked was just things that weren't, that were like a lot softer than what I had wanted before because I wasn't, I wasn't so numb, you know? And I could allow someone to see me. I mean, that was something that was really big for me. I think one of the reasons that I wanted to have sex drunk was the same reason that somebody might want to have sex in the dark. It was just, there was just this terror of somebody seeing me. And I think what I realized is that I want to be having sex with somebody that I don't need to be in the dark with. Like that I've gotten to that place of intimacy. And for me, that took time. Yeah. You know, it wasn't something that I could do instantly. You know, I had been living in this in this New York, you know, culture of kind of like meeting somebody at the bar and then like you go home with them and you have this, you sleep with them and like maybe you see them again, maybe you never see them again. It's no big deal. And I just, I had to get out of that world. You know, one of the challenges for me was that I got sober at the years when dating apps were starting to become a thing and dating sites were starting to become a thing. And there was this push toward, you know, you need to have sex on the third date or like, and I was like, I can't have sex on the third date. So I felt like I was slowing down at the same time that culture was speeding up (laughs) and that was challenging. What a conundrum, conundrum, right? And, you know, uh, I will always have like a kind of a resentment that I think, uh, I do think it's a little bit easier for guys to quit drinking than for women in the dating market. Because I think as a general rule, women are kind of like, oh, you're sober. Okay. Guys can be a little bit more like, oh, she doesn't drink. I'm not going to date her. Like she's, she's not going to be fun. And I definitely felt that stigma in the beginning, you know, like people just wouldn't take a chance on me. Is that something that you assume? Or if you asked a hundred guys that question, I would go out and ask a hundred dudes that question. Have you- I definitely did ask men. Um, but what I, what I found too was in the beginning I was being drawn to drinkers. I was in being the beginning drawn, of your sobriety? Yeah. I was being drawn. Like when I would go through those apps, you know, it was like uh, the interesting people were kind of, those were my people. And of course they yeah. didn't want to date somebody that didn't drink because drinking was their life, you know? And so I had to kind of like keep my distance from them. Um, I now, um, I don't know if it's that I don't broadcast it as much. Like sobriety is like not something I put front and center, which I think back then I did. And that might've been a different thing too. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I actually don't think it's a deal. I actually don't think it's a problem. And I think it's a great self selector. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you are so uncomfortable dating, going on a date with a sober woman, then, then I'm not the right person for you. But in the beginning, I definitely had this sense, um, that it was something that was, that was working against me. Um, and I've, I've heard, I've heard some guys say that's crazy. And I've heard some guys say, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. I guess Um, it's who you ask, like the dude, the guy that you're dealing with and, and, and where he's at in his life and what he's looking for and what he's not looking for. Uh, newsflash, I don't have it figured out yet. My wife and I are still walking this path together. You know, even at 22 years sober, I'm still trying to figure it out. 
You yeah. know, I'm trying to figure out what her love language is. She's still trying to figure out what my love language is, you know, and there's a really good book on it called the five love languages that we have read. And uh, we do not have the same love language. We do not speak the same love language, which is interesting to me. And I have to do different things to let her know and show her that I love her. And she has to do different things and to let her know that, you know, to let me know that she loves her. And sometimes I have to remind her a lot. You know, I'm like, this is what my love language is. Do this, do this is what I like, you know. Uh, for me, I know what mine is. It's, it's words of affirmation and touch. Mm. It's words of affirmation and touch. I and mean, what does touch mean? Put your hand on my thigh when we're driving down the street and say, I love you. You're beautiful, man. I'm glad to be your wife. Just that's it. Yeah, that's it. I'm not asking for any kind of crazy sex thing. And like that. it's just words of affirmation and touch. I like to be touched, physically touched, and I need to be talked to. That's me. Uh, there's other ones that do not speak to me at all, which is um, acts of service. I don't care. Uh, gifts, tributes. I don't care. Right. You give me no birthday presents for the next 40 years. I don't care. You won't even notice. I don't, yeah. yeah. I'll be happy. Yeah. yeah It'll be better yeah. for me if you don't do that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. there's some chicks, there's some ladies that they're like, um, yeah, I'm, I, look what I bought you, you know? Oh yeah. 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 I used, to lo- I used to love being like the perfect gift giver. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah my wife has spent so many years picking me out the perfect card and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, you're like, Oh, cool. I'm like, okay, well, um, yeah, thank you. No, no. But, but, but in her family and her structure, coming up, the, the perfect car was everything. So guess what I do now? I go to the friggin' store, yeah. and I stand there in Target or Walmart or whatever, American Gifts, and I stand there, even though I don't want to, and I buy the perfect card, and I fill it out, and I give it to her, because I know it means a lot to her. Yeah. And I know that's her love language, so I do that for her. I want to read something real quick. Um, this is from Paige, because uh, our program and our text and our literature does talk about this specifically and directly. It's not, it's not like it's like, well, we don't really know. Good luck. Figure it out. It's the opposite of that. There's some very specific talk and directions about this topic. So I want to read from page 68 in the big book. It says, now about sex. Many of us have needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It is so easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cries that sex is a lust of our lower nature, a base necessity for procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it, or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us on an all straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our own conduct over the past years. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relationship to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideas and to help us live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. And it goes on to talk more about sex. And that's on page 68 and 69 in the big book. About 30 minutes ago, you made a point of me bringing the topic back up about meetings. And you've been sober a long time. Yeah. And it sounded to me like, 
you drifted away from meetings a little bit, but now you're back in the saddle and and hitting them pretty hard and getting some good results from that. So can you maybe talk, talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were many years when I was going to meetings pretty regularly and I didn't really, like I did it because it worked for me. But one thing that was strange that happened was that my home group kind of fell apart, which had never happened before. Uh, I didn't know that could happen. It it does happen. It does happen. And I never really found my way back into another one. I, I, I just, I, I couldn't find a groove that I liked. And that's around the time the pandemic hit. Oh my God. All of these together, which was around 10 years of sobriety, kind of coalesced to make me go, you know, maybe I don't need meetings anymore. And I started to just retreat. I remember I got 10 years of sobriety and I didn't even go to a meeting. I didn't tell anybody. I mean, I just sort of passed the day. You know, I had some like private you know, like I was gratitude and stuff like that. But I just started to think like, I don't think that I need meetings. Now, meanwhile, I had, my sponsor had moved and I had never found another sponsor. I had asked somebody and she had been too busy. And then I, I didn't find somebody else. So now I'm sponsorless and I'm starting to not go to meetings. And over the next year or so, I'm just starting to kind of feel the effects of that, you know, like I'm getting really off the beam in my own life. How How is that manifesting? Like grouchy? Grumpy? Well, I actually had a lot of depression Okay, and I had a lot of, um, you know, just a, a, a more despair and kind of stuck in my own head. And I was on a project that I wasn't sure was going to work. And I was really scared about it. And I just, you know, I just was spinning a lot. Um, I work at home and I live alone. And so if I'm left to my own devices, I can, <laughs> there's a line in the big book that says the grouch and the brainstorm are not for us. And every time I read it, I'm like, really? The grouch and the brainstorm are like all I know. <laughs> and I have to remind myself that like, this is not for me. It was about maybe like three or four months ago. And I started to like, I had kind of white knuckled through that last period of depression. And I, I was working on, it was actually this cheerleaders uh, podcast that you and I have spoken about. I have a podcast called America's girls, which is about the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. And I was, it was incredibly challenging and I was really white knuckling through that. And what I mean by that is not that I wanted to drink because drinking to me has become kind of like a broken switch in my head. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do what I want it to do. And so I don't, that's not where my brain goes, but my, I just start to feel like, what do I need? I need something. Like I'm starting to feel like I'm, I have this crazy energy and I don't know where to put it. And I started smoking cigarettes, old fashioned cigarettes. Okay. Um, just to like have something to kind of like offload, um, these feelings I'd white knuckled through that. And then I'd gotten better, but then I was starting to feel it kind of descend again. And then I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. I've got to start going to meetings and I've got to get a sponsor. I go through phases like this where when I started going to meetings again, I was grumpy again. I was grumpy again, like a newcomer. And I was sort of like, why am I sitting here? You know, like, God, I've heard these stories a million times. And then when I started working with a sponsor, she said, you know, I want to treat you a little bit like a newcomer. Like I want you to go to four meetings a week and I want you to get a book that doesn't have all of the the passages underlined. I want you to get a new book so that you're experiencing it new again. And I was kind of like, God, I don't, 12 years into this, I don't want to go four times a week, but I did do it. And sure enough, 
you know, pushing me into that meant that I started to have to create some connections and some, you know, um, like, like, what do I want to say? Like I got latched into these, these meetings where I started to look forward to them. I started to see people that I knew and I started to watch people grow. You know, you get the yield of basically having this strange group of people that you might not have chosen, but that you're all walking on this little path together. There is this incredible profundity to it. And to me, it is a spiritual experience to sit in those rooms and listen to these other people and be connected to them in this energy. I really prefer in-person meetings than Zoom meetings. Um, I, I really like being in that room. And, you know, I've just, I've, I've thought so often about the things that I fight against turn out to be the things that I really need, you know? And for me, being in, in, in the meetings, being part of this program, not being somebody that has, I just, I, I guess I, I felt sort of like I'd graduated, right? I sort of felt like I'm 10 years into this. I don't really need this anymore. Well, things got weird. I mean, if you lost your sponsor and then COVID hit and then Zoom was a thing and you've got this big project and you live by yourself. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's just a, that's a lot. That yeah. is a lot. And yeah. so to, to, to get plugged in and to stay plugged in and almost like take your medicine, you know, take that <laughs> medicine to help you That's the thing. drain the swamp a little bit between your ears. When you drain the swamp a little bit between your ears, you can see things a little bit more clearly and you establish these connections with people. And like you said, you start to hear their stories of what they're going through in their world and it gets you out of yourself and the selfishness and the self-centeredness subsides enough to where you can see other people and God and you can see your true self and the reflection of their eyes back at you yep. and you can just kind of calm down yep, and maybe, is, maybe take a deeper breath and just be like, okay, man, this is good for me. I know this is good for me. It's been demonstrated. This is good for me. I'm yes. going to stay this time. And the exciting thing about that for me is a meeting attendance and stuff like that. It's not just for like me and how am I doing, but it's also to be there for other people and be a, a shining light and example to those cats that are coming in off the street that are just train wreck city like we were when we first got mm-hmm. here, you know, and they look at me and they're like, okay, look at, look at that dude. He's, he's talking about like, he, he's, I think I heard him say he was homeless, dude. He, he, he what, how do you go from yeah. homeless to that? Yeah. And they're drawn to us. And then we're like AA success stories and they come to us and they, they feed off of our spiritual energy or whatever. Just like I fed off the spiritual energy of Gary P when I came in and the other guys and the females that helped me in early sobriety. So it's, it's like a live deal. It's like a live organism. It just keeps moving. It's it beautiful. is a live organism. I like that. Can you give me an example of any of the promises that you really enjoy? I've got a list of them there. Yeah, no, I know. I know the one that uh, it was the first one that kind of spoke to me when I first heard them read at a meeting. And it was, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that so badly because I felt completely overwhelmed in my life and didn't know what to do. And I just didn't, and, and like I would just get stuck in it so bad and I was scared and anxious all the time. And I do think that through the process of sobriety, I have learned ways to navigate through that feeling of anxiety and overwhelm that have been so 
helpful. I am really proud of the fact that when something overwhelms me, you know, or something, I, I don't, I don't know what to do. I can kind of sit with it for a little bit and I can either pray on it, talk to somebody, write about it, you know, like, and, and I will find, I feel like so much more connected to what I call like the small, still voice inside of me that kind of like settles. And I know this is the right answer. And, you know, that has been huge for me because before then it was sort of like, well, what do you think? Well, what do you think I should do? You know, like I have to take like a, a million opinions, you know, and then and, and I still want to hear what people think. But part of that is just to help sift through where I want to go. Having that a little bit more firmly in my hands is something that I'm incredibly grateful for. Sarah Heppala, I really appreciate you joining us today. Don't forget to check out our website, sarahheppala.com. The name of the book is Blackout. Tell them the name of the podcast about the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders one more time. Sure. It's called America's Girls. And the new book, tell them a little bit about that new book you got coming out. In some ways, it's, you know, it's a continuation of the story that I told in Blackout, which ends when I'm 40. And so this is something that takes me through the next years as I was kind of crossing through this line and realizing that I might not get a chance to have kids, which was something that I wanted. And also how I learned to date. I mean, you know, like I never, I have not gotten a life partner yet, but I have learned to date and I'm, and I'm really proud of that. And it's been an incredibly joyful and educational experience to kind of connect with people for as long as they end up in my life, you know, which sometimes is a, you know, an evening that I might share with somebody and sometimes is months. And so that's what it's about. And in some ways, you know, the gifts of the life that you didn't expect to have. I can't wait to read the new book or listen to the new book. I'm really looking forward to it. I appreciate you joining us here today. I want to read something called The Vision for You. This is from page 164 in the big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. We'll see you all in the next episode of Sober Shares. Thank you for joining us.